ਰਾਜ ਕੌਰ ਮਾਂ ਕੁਖ ਚੋਂ ਪ੍ਰਗਟ ਹੋਇਆ ਪਾਨ ਨਾ ਜਿਸ ਦਾ ਰਣਜੀਤ ਸਿੰਘ ਸਿੰਘ ਤਵਦੀ ਜੋ ਸ਼ਾਨ ਚੜਤ ਸਿੰਘ ਦਾ ਪੋਤਰਾ ਵਰਿਆ ਜਿਸ ਨੂੰ ਜਿੱਤ ਗਜਪਤ ਸਿੰਘ ਦਾ ਦੋਤਰਾ ਮਹਾ ਸਿੰਘ ਦਾ ਸੁੱਤ ਕਰਨੀਵਾਨ ਮਹਾਨ ਉਹ ਸੂਰਮਤਾ ਦਾ ਮਾਣ ਜਿਸ ਦੇ ਨਾਂ ਪੰਜਾਬ ਦੀ ਹੈ ਰੁਸ਼ਨਾਈ ਸ਼ਾਨ ਹਿੰਦ ਦਾ ਮਹਾ ਨੈਪੋਲੀਅਨ ਬਾਬਰ ਜੋ ਬਲਵਾਨ ਅਕਬਰ ਪਰਜਾ ਵਾਸਤੇ ਧਰਮੀ ਜਨਕ ਸਮਾਨ ਮਹਾ ਸਿੰਘ ਦੇ ਸੀਸ ਤੇ ਲਗੀਆਂ ਚੌਰ ਚੁਲਾਣ ਚਰਨ ਫੜੇ ਆ ਸ਼ੌਕਤਾਂ ਦੇ ਵਰਯਮਤਾ ਤਾਣ ਸੂਲ ਨਗਰ ਦੀ ਜਿੱਤ ਦੇ ਨਾਲ ਸੁਣੇ ਸਰਦਾਰ ਜਮਿਆ ਜੋ ਬਦਲਾਏਗਾ ਸਮਿਆਂ ਦੀ ਨੋਹਾਰ ਸਰਦੀ ਸਿਖਰਾਂ ਚੜ ਰਹੀ ਰੁੱਤ ਵਿੱਚ ਨਵਾਂ ਨਿਖਾਰ ਰਹਿ ਗਈ ਸਦੀ 18ਵੀਂ 20 ਸਾਲਾਂ ਦੀ ਮਾਰ ਖੁਸ਼ੀਆਂ ਪਿਤਾ ਮਨਾਈਆਂ ਦਿੱਤੇ ਵੱਡੇ ਦਾਨ from the womb of rajkor has emerged the sun called he is ranjit singh brave and glorious one grandson of great charat singh victory was whose fame gajpat singh grandfather to maha singh his father's name doer of great deeds was he glorious and brave brought he glory to punjab incandescence gave india's own napoleon blessed with babur's might akbar to his subjects with janak's righteous light circumambulate his head glories many a kind bends before him power by bravery defined his father at rasulnagar victorious was his force a son is born destined to change of history the course the weather then was cool and crisp lustrous was the time just two decades did remain for a century new to chime joyous was his father much wealth he gave away to subjects and his deputies who came respects to pay welcome to the second episode of the rise and fall of the sikh empire i'm host ben gutman in this episode a squabble between mahasingh the father of ranjit singh and the powerful kanhayas over the sharing of the spoils from an expedition to jammu draws in the legendary chief jassa singh ramgurdia and raja sansar chand the ruler of the hill kingdom of kangra the ensuing conflict leads to the ruin of the kanhayas and alters the dynamics of power in the punjab the maratha chief madhaji sindhia The new regent of the dying Mughal Empire tries to form an alliance with the Sikhs to save the emperor's lands from ruin. The star of Maha Singh continues to rise. The victory over the Chattas at Rasulnagar and the birth of a son were both causes for great celebration in Gujranwala. Rajkor's status increased greatly because of the birth of a male child and congratulatory messages poured in from chiefs all over Punjab. Many of the petty chiefs in the area who had earlier fought under the Bhangi banner 
travel to the home of Mahasingh and Rajkor personally, bearing expensive gifts, eager to ingratiate themselves with the leader of the Shukarchakya missile, whose star seemed to be in the ascendant. Sardar Jaisingh Kanaiya sent his son Gurbak Singh with a cartload of gifts for his protege and his family. When Raj Kaur somewhat tartly commented on her friend Sadakor's absence, Gurbak Singh didn't say much. After the visitor had left, she remarked to her husband, she must be jealous. After all, she has been married much longer than I and has not yet produced an heir. As if this good fortune were not enough, a new opportunity that seemed extremely profitable presented itself. Jammu, one of the wealthiest hill kingdoms at various times, had paid tribute to the Sikhs as Mughal authority in the region was collapsing under the onslaught of the Afghan king Amacha Abdali. During one of Abdali's invasions, the king of Jammu, Raja Ranjit Deo, had submitted to him, angering the Sikh Sardars. In 1765, Sardar Jassa Singh Aluwalia had led a punitive expedition against Raja Ranjit Deo and had extracted a sum of 375,000 rupees in tribute after forcing him to submit. From that point on, Jammu was regarded by various Sikh chiefs as a prime target for plunder. In 1770, Raja Ranjit Singh Deo's oldest son, Brijraj Deo, had launched a rebellion against his father because it was becoming apparent that the king wanted his younger son, Dalail Singh, to succeed him. The civil war between father and son took an ugly turn and ended up dividing the Sikh missiles. The prince, Brijraj Deo, turned to Sardar Jaisingh Kanahya and Charat Singh Shukarchakya for help, and the king, Raja Ranjit Deo, turned to the Bhangis, who were at the height of their power, drafting Sardar Jhanda Singh Pangi to fight on his side. The Rajas of Chamba, Noorpur and Basoli also threw in their lot with the young prince. The battle between father and son, which took place at Dasuha, was inconclusive, but it turned out to be a disaster for the Sikhs. Sardar Charat Singh Shukarchakya, perhaps the greatest of the Sikh heroes of the time, was killed when his matchlock exploded. Then, Sardar Jhanda Singh Pangi was shot on the back in his own camp by one of his soldiers. There were ugly rumors that Sardar Jaisingh Kanhiya had ordered the assassination. The death of Jhanda Singh put an end to the fighting, and father and son were forced to reconcile. After the Bhangis had retreated, Hakikat Singh Kanhiya was able to extract 125,000 rupees in tribute. The sum was to be paid annually as a mark of Raja Ranjit Deo's submission to the Kanhiyas. Sardar Mahasingh Shukarchakya left for Amritsar in response to an urgent summons from Sardar Jaisingh Kanhiya, who was waiting for him at the Kanhiya Bunga. Raja Ranjit Deo is dead, said the patriarch. Brijraj Deo, our ally, is the new king, and he has asked for our help in taking back some of his territories that are still held by the Bhangis. If you are amenable, Barkurdar, I would like to send you to assist him. Mahasingh, eager for every new opportunity that promised wealth and fame, readily agreed. 
Sardar Jai Singh Kanhaiya and Hakikat Singh Kanhaiya sent their agents bearing gifts for the newly crowned king and Maha Singh went to Jammu personally and exchanged turbans with Raja Brijraj Deo as a pledge of friendship. Unbeknownst to Maha Singh, his mentor and his allies were not fully invested in the venture. The Bhangi chief who had control of Kariyawala, Jalalpur and Islamgarh which Brijraj Deo wanted to recover, was Gujar Singh, with whom the Kanhaiyas had an understanding. Hence, even though they agreed to Brijraj Deo's offer of 30,000 rupees as the fee for the assistance, they were only paying lip service because they had no intention of confronting Gujar Singh Bhangi. With only token support from the Kanayas, the conflict dragged on for a couple of months. By then, Mahasingh clearly understood that the Kanayas had been double-dealing, and after the territories were recovered, he influenced Brijraj Deo to withhold the payment of 30,000 rupees, much to Hakikat Singh Kanayas chagrin. Thus were sown the seeds of distrust, between the Kanhiyas and the Shukarchakiyas, which were to have disastrous consequences. News of the events in Jammu filtered back to Tira Sujanpur where an embittered Raja Sansarchand was biding his time, still hoping to win back the mighty fort of Kangra. These Sardars grow in power every day, mother, he said to Chandrika Devi, who continued to be his most trusted advisor. All of her personal wealth, represented by her exquisite jewelry that she had made over to him for raising an army, had already been spent with nothing much to show for it. How will we ever defeat the mother? asked the young king in anguish. The queen mother counseled patience. The six Sardar seem powerful today, but who knows what will happen tomorrow. Just a few years ago, Jassa Singh Ramgadiya terrorized the hills. But where is he now? He hasn't been seen in these parts for years now. Yes, the Kanhiyas have a large army and many vassals, but you know this well. Their fortunes can change in an instant, and the fealty of the Rajas who pay tribute to them today is fickle and self-serving. Mark my word, son, we will benefit from the conflict in Jammu. The six Sardars are already at each other's throats, and as they begin to eye even bigger prizes their conflicts will escalate. Our day will come. Raja Sansar Chand nodded, but deep in his heart he was not convinced. Sardar Jaising Kanhaiya was the most powerful chief in all of Punjab, and the fort of Kangra, once the pride of the Katoch dynasty, was firmly in his hands. It was only a matter of time before he completely subdued Jammu as well, and the riches that would fall into his hands would only serve to make him even more powerful. Little did he know of the windfall that was coming his way because of the events in Jammu.
He was 60 years old and his beard had turned gray. Several of his comrades with whom he had broken bread and fought many a battle with were long gone. His thoughts went back to the days when he rode with Hari Singh Pangi, Charad Singh Shukar Chakya, Jai Singh Kanaya, and Jasa Singh Aluwalia, harrying the retreating forces of Emacha Abdali, earning the monarch's ire and grudging respect. His former comrades, Jai Singh Kanaya and Jasa Singh Aluwalia, were now his bitter enemies, who had dispossessed him of all his territories. While they were respected greybeards and universally admired, their clans positioned for even greater glory, Sardar Jassa Singh Ramgadiya was a veritable outlaw, who had been reduced to seeking shelter across the Satalaj River with Amar Singh of the Fulkiya clan who had granted him a small estate. The Ramgadiyas had always been a little different from the other powerful missiles, while the aristocratic Jassa Singh Aluwalia, the one-time protege of Mata Sundari, Guru Gobind Singh's wife, and later Nawab Kapoor Singh, the paramount Sikh chief in the early days of the Dal Khalsa, had always epitomized the ideals of the Sant Sipahi as articulated by the 10th Guru, Jassa Singh Ramgadiya was characterized by pragmatism that bordered on the mercenary, he and his brothers had willingly served under Adina Beg, the Mughal commander of the Jalandar Dawab, until he had defected to the side of his Sikh brethren when they faced almost certain annihilation at the hands of the Mughals at the fort of Ram Rani decades earlier. The victory at Ram Rani had allowed Jassa Singh Ramgadiya to forge strong alliances with the other Sikh chiefs, and for the next two decades, his forces had become an integral part of the Dal Khalsa, participating in operations in Kasur and elsewhere, and joining the resistance to Ahmed Shah Abdali during his attacks on the Punjab. It was in collaboration with the Bhangis and the Kanhayas that he had managed to carve out territories for his clan and establish control over the prosperous cities of Kalanor and Batala, and subjugate several of the Hindu hill rajas. While most of the other missiles were each governed by a singular head who exercised complete authority and in most cases established a strong presence at one place, Jassa Singh Ramgadiya tended to move around within his territories and shared power with his brothers, with Mali Singh governing Batala and Tara Singh Kalanor. After the death of Tara Singh and the loss of all their territories, the Ramgadiya cavalry was reduced to half its number when Jassa Singh sought refuge with Amar Singh of Patiala. Determined to repair the fortunes of his clan, Jassa Singh Ramgadiya made a decision. Building a war chest was paramount, and so, in the autumn of his life, he decided to mount his steed again and leaving his son Jodh Singh in command of his small estate, he turned his eye southwest to the rich Mughal crownlands and the territories of the Rohillas.
Mahasin Shukrachakya, accompanied by his wife Raj Kaur, who was still nursing their infant son Rajit Singh, set out from Gujranwala, accompanied by a detachment of Shukrachakya cavalry. Their destination was Batala, the headquarters of the Kanhayas. The men were all on horseback, and a cordon of warriors formed a protective ring around a cart in which sat Raj Kaur, her infant son, and her maids in attendance. The cart was filled with expensive gifts. It must be a boy, said Raj Kaur to her husband, when a messenger arrived with news that Gurbak Singh Kanhaya and Sadakor had been blessed with a child. And about time too, she said tartly. The birth of an heir in the clan of Jaisingh Kanhaya was an important event, and the bad blood from the Jammu misadventure temporarily forgotten, Mahasingh had decided to go to Batala, bearing gifts as a sign of respect for his mentor. When they arrived at the Kanhaya stronghold rather late at night, Rajkor was surprised to find the mood to be somewhat subdued. Determined to get to the bottom of the strange lack of festivities, she quickly cornered Tankor and Mankor, who she knew to be Sadakor's favorite attendants. The usually loquacious girls were uncharacteristically tight-lipped and volunteered nothing when Rajkor asked them why a celebration was not in progress, quietly leading her to the rooms that had been prepared for their stay. The mystery was solved the next morning when Rajkor was finally admitted to Sadakor's chambers. Rajkor could barely contain her jubilation as she congratulated Sadakor on the birth of her daughter. Sadakor, however, was perfectly cheerful and in no way seemed despondent at her failure to produce a male heir as she proudly showed off her daughter to her friend. Isn't she beautiful, she said. We have decided to name her Mehtabkor. That she is, said Rajkor, without an ounce of insincerity. For the daughter of Gurbak Singh and the granddaughter of Jasing Kanhiya, both of whom had been famed for their good looks, was a beautiful baby. And what a perfect name. She is every bit as beautiful as the moon. Raja Amar Singh's motivation while offering shelter to Sardar Jasasingh Ramgadiya had not exactly been altruistic. The Bhattis of Sarsa had rebelled against him, and rather than subjugating them himself, he engaged the Ramgadiya force to bring them to heel, paying them a daily allowance of 500 rupees for their expenses. The doughty Jasasingh Ramgadiya defeated the Bhattis and also subdued the cities of Hisar and Hansi, after which he established a presence at Tosham, which lay within striking distance of Delhi, as well as various wealthy towns controlled by Zabitha Khan Rohilla. The country was in the grip of a severe famine that is remembered as the Chalisa to mark the year 1840 per the Bikrami calendar and the situation in Punjab was terrible, 
prompting the Sikh chiefs to look beyond their borders for revenue. It was at Hisar that Jassa Singh Ramgadiya got word that 60,000 warriors under the command of Sardar Jassa Singh Aluwalia and Sardar Bagail Singh were rampaging through Mughal territories controlled by the Marathas and the Rohillas. They had plundered Ghaziabad and Bulandshahr and had completely sacked Kurja, a wealthy market town that traded in grain and ghee. The Sikh chiefs had set aside a tenth of the booty to be spent on renovating and improving the Sri Harmandar Sahib. Then they had moved further south, attacking Aligarh, Hathras, Tundala and Farukhabad, after which they had returned to Delhi, making preparations to return to Punjab. The enormous plunder had been sent back home under the guard of 10,000 warriors. The remaining 50,000 were busy plundering Delhi. It was an opportunity too good to be missed. On March 12, 1783, Sardar Jassa Singh Ram who had rebuilt his forces, arrived at the gates of Delhi at the head of 10,000 horsemen. After ravaging the city of Delhi and its suburbs, he arrived at the Red Fort and forced his way inside. His men, relieving hundreds who had sought shelter behind the walls of the fort, of their property. He discovered to his chagrin that his one-time comrade and nemesis, Sardar Jassa Singh Aluwalia, was already inside the fort with a large contingent of warriors, who were about to seat their chief on the Mughal throne and proclaim him the king of Delhi. The Ramgadiya warriors drew their swords, as did the Aluwalias, but a battle inside the Divane Am, the large audience hall in the Red Fort, was prevented by the sagacity of Sardar Jassa Singh Aluwalia, who ordered his men to stand down. The court of the Mughal Emperor Shah Alam, who was a monarch in name only, waited in nervous apprehension. 30,000 Sikhs under Sardar Bagail Singh were encamped not too far from the Red Fort at a spot that came to be known as Thies Hazari. Another 20,000 under Sardar Jassa Singh Aluwalia and 10,000 under Sardar Jassa Singh Ramgadiya roamed the city unchecked. Late at night, a small group rode into Sardar Bagail Singh's camp. While the group included several warriors armed to their teeth, their bearing wasn't hostile, and when their leader, a boyish diminutive figure wearing fine robes and sporting a bejeweled turban, requested an audience with the chief, they were all taken to his tent. The soldiers were instructed to wait outside as their leader went into the tent unarmed. As his eyes lit up with a glimmer of recognition, Sardar Bagail Singh greeted his visitor with a smile. I did not expect to see you here, was all he said in response to the visitor's courtly bow. Farzana Zebun Nissa drew herself to her full height, all four foot eight inches of it, and smiled back. Sardar Sahib, Vaiguruji ka khalsa, Vaiguruji ki fateh. I am here at the command of the Emperor Shah Alam, she said, and he has authorized me to talk to the forces of the Dal Khalsa on his behalf. The city has already been devastated by famine, and the emperor fears for the safety of his subjects. Farzana, 
The ruler of the small state of Sardhana to the northwest of Delhi had been recently baptized and had been given the name Johanna Nubilis Sombre, but she was better known as Begum Samru, an extremely capable woman who had started life as a courtesan in Delhi's Chori Bazaar. She had become an important figure in the court of the emperor, who regarded her as his daughter. After the death of her husband, Walter Reinhardt Sombre, she had ruled Sardhana with the emperor's approval and support. Since she was known to be a wise and diplomatic woman who had dealt with the six Sardars before, the emperor had hastily summoned her to Delhi after the arrival of the Sikh forces and had nominated her to negotiate a settlement with the Sikh chiefs besieging the city. Sardar Bagail Singh, the leader of the famed Karodsingya missile, enjoyed a stature that was no lesser than that of any of his contemporary Sikh chiefs. But he told the Begum to wait while he conferred with Sardar Jassa Singh Aluwalia and Sardar Jassa Singh Ramgadiya. The negotiations began only after the other two chiefs nominated him to speak for the entire Sikh force. The emperor willingly affixed his seal to the settlement that was negotiated between Sardar Bagail Singh and Begum Samru, under which the Dal Khalsa was to withdraw from Delhi, leaving behind Bagail Singh at the head of a force 4,000 strong. Bagail Singh was tasked with maintaining law and order in Delhi, and in exchange he was given almost 40% of the octroi collected for the maintenance of his troops. He was also given formal permission to build seven gurdwaras at sites that had been associated with the various gurus who had visited Delhi and their families. The first gurdwara built by Bagail Singh was at Telivara, where Mata Sundari and Mata Sahibkor had lived. The second was Gurdwara Bangla Sahib, where Guru Harkishan had stayed during his visit to Delhi. The next one was Gurdwara Bala Sahib, where Guru Harkishan and subsequently Mata Sundari and Mata Sahibkor had been cremated. Gurdwara Siskanj was built at the Kotwali or police post, where Guru Teg Bahadur had been executed, and Gurdwara Rakab Ganj was built at the site where his body had been cremated. The sixth Gurdwara was built at Majnuka Tilla, a site associated with both Guru Nanak and Guru Hargobind, and the last one was built at Motibag, where Guru Gobind Singh had encamped on a visit to Delhi. The construction of the Gurdwaras took eight months to complete, after which Bakhail Singh returned home with his army, per his agreement with the emperor. Sardar Jassa Singh Aluwalia and Sardar Jassa Singh Ramgadiya left Delhi according to the agreement. The Ramgadiya sacked the outer palaces and carried off whatever treasure they could find. They also captured four large guns and made off with a large marble slab, which was later placed in the Ramgadiya Bunga in Amritsar. As the Sikh chiefs were plundering Delhi and striking terror in the heart of the Mughal court, their actions were being watched closely by an Englishman hundreds of miles away in Agra. The recently promoted Major James Brown of the 4th Battalion of Sepoys had been given a special assignment by Warren Hastings, the Governor-General of the British East India Company. Brown had joined the East India Company's army almost two decades earlier as a cadet, 
and had risen steadily through the ranks, eventually becoming Hastings' aide-de-camp and confidant, he had been appointed governor of the Jungleterai districts, an ill-defined, thickly forested region that fell in the present-day Indian states of West Bengal, Bihar, and Jharkhand. Warren Hastings was fully aware of the chaos in the Mughal court in Delhi, where the weak Emperor Shah Alam was at the mercy of powerful nobles jockeying for power. Since the East India Company derived its constitutional status in India from Shah Alam, its nominal overlord, Hastings felt that it was important for the company to have a representative in Delhi to safeguard its interest. The turmoil, the turmoil in Delhi could have provided an opportunity to one of two powers to seize the capital and control the emperor, none of whom could be relied upon to provide the stability that was crucial to the company's interests. The first power was the Dal Khalsa, the army of the Sikh Commonwealth, which controlled the territory between the Indus and the Satluj rivers, they had historically not been a threat to British interests, but in recent times they had stepped up their raids, crossing into territory controlled by Zabitha Khan Rohilla and plundering it with impunity, often going even deeper into Rohilkhand and appearing at the very boundaries of Avad, which was the strongest ally of the East India Company in the region. The Marathas, who had built back their strength, after the crushing defeat at Panipat at the hands of Emacha Abdali, were the second power. Their face in the north was Mataji Sindhya of Gwalior and Ujjain, one of the greatest Maratha chiefs, who had been responsible for restoring Shah Alam to the throne in Delhi after almost a decade of domination by Zabitha Khan's late father, Najib Khan Rohilla. The British were very familiar with the Marathas, having fought an extended war with them that had ended with the Treaty of Salbai less than a year earlier. In particular, Warren Hastings had a lot of respect for Madhaji Sindhya, who had handed the British a defeat at the Battle of Vadgaon. The Treaty of Salbai that had established peace between the British and the Marathas had been signed by Madhaji Sindhya and David Anderson, an officer in the East India Company and a close confidant of the Governor-General. On March 10th and 12th, Brown sent urgent letters to Warren Hastings from Agra, indicating his inability to make further progress towards Delhi because of the Sikh rampage in the capital. In an earlier letter dated February 25th, Brown had shared his apprehensions about the rising power of the Sikhs with the Governor-General. The greatest concern was the security of Avad, as according to him, the Sikhs had plundered all the districts between the Yamuna and the borders of Avad. Even though he had not yet arrived at Delhi, Brown painted a sorry picture of the state of the court based on the intelligence he had gathered. In his view, the late Mirza Najaf Khan, who had been the most capable of Shah Alam's courtiers, had been a bulwark against the Sikhs and had acted as a buffer between them and Avad. After his death, the intense infighting among the nobles at the Mughal court had rendered it completely ineffectual, and Brown's fear was that the territory southeast of Delhi would soon be captured by the Sikhs, 
making them a permanent threat to Avad and consequently the British. Also concerning was the lack of a military response from the Nawab of Awadh, Asaf Dallah, the Grand Vizier at Mughal court, whose troops at Lucknow and Farooqabad, the Sikhs, did not seem to fear at all. If Delhi and its dependencies are to be saved, Brown wrote to Hastings somewhat dramatically, the English and the Vizier are the only powers to effect it. Warren Hastings, the Governor-General of the British East India Company, was starting to take note of the rising power of the six. In the summer of 1783, Mataji Sindhya received an urgent summons from the Emperor Shah Alam, brought to him by Bapu Rao Hingane, the Maratha agent in Delhi. After the death of Mirza Najaf Khan, the most important nobles at court were Afsarab Khan, an adopted son of the emperors, Mirza Shafi, his sister's son, and Muhammad Beg Hamdani, the commander of the Agra fort. The other important figures were the Grand Vizier Asaf of Avad and Begum Samru of Sardana. Umrao Giri and Anup Giri, who commanded battalions of Gosains, warlike Hindu ascetics, were also employed in Shah Alam's service. The emperor was casting about for a strong man who could bolster his position by filling the vacuum created by the death of Mirza Najaf Khan, and he determined that there was none more suitable than Mataji Sindhya, who had placed him back on the Mughal throne a decade earlier and had crushed the power of both the Jats and Zabitha Khan Rohilla. Mataji Sindhya was hesitant even as Hingani lobbied him aggressively, calling it a heaven-sent opportunity for the re-establishment of Maratha power in the north. Madhaji was fully aware that he would not get much material support from the Maratha court in Pune, and he knew that the Mughal court was bankrupt financially and could not be relied upon to provide any military support. He had been cultivating a relationship with David Anderson, who had become a good friend, which assured him of the British governor-general's support as well. The emperor lost patience at Mataji's lukewarm response and sent his son and heir Mirza Jawan Bakht to Agra with Afsarab Khan and Mirza Shafi in attendance with the intention of sending them on to Gwalior to meet Mataji Sindhya. Such was the mystique of the Mughal monarchy, even in its reduced circumstances, that Mataji rushed to Agra to meet the prince for making him travel to Gwalior would have been disrespectful. With Anderson by his side, Madhaji met the prince at Agra. After the ceremonial nazar had been presented to the prince, and killats or robes of honor had been conferred upon Madhaji's delegation, the prince formally asked him to take over the administration of Delhi. Madhaji, however, demurred, citing urgent business that he had to take care of, but he offered to visit Delhi after the monsoon. Unbeknownst to Madhaji Sindhya, 
While Warren Hastings had extended a hand of friendship to him, the Governor-General was staunchly opposed to the Marathas regaining a foothold in Delhi, and it was to counter Maratha influence that Brown had been named British resident at the Mughal court. As the Sikhs were busy plundering Delhi, the two major powers in the subcontinent, the British and the Marathas, were both eyeing the capital, for whoever controlled the Mughal monarch would ostensibly control the destiny of India. The continued presence of Sardar Bakhel Singh in Delhi had also become a cause of great unease to the British, for they saw the Sikhs primarily as raiders and did not understand why they had stayed on. Even before arriving in Delhi, Major James Brown started making overtures to Bakhel Singh, who was busy with the construction of the Gurdwaras and delegated the correspondence to his agent Lakhpat Rai, who represented him at Mughal court. Lakhpat Rai advised Brown to approach Sardar Jassasing Aluwalia, who was acknowledged by most Sikhs as the greatest chief among them. Nothing, however, came of the correspondence, and by the time Brown arrived in Delhi, Sardar Bagheel Singh had already left. The Sikhs did not realize that they had lost a great opportunity, for the emperor, desperate for stability, had considered Sardar Bagheel Singh a viable candidate to become the regent of the Mughal throne, even as he was courting Madhaji Sindhya. It would have put an end to Sikh raids in the lands owned by the emperor, and Sikh strength would have been a bulwark against other rebel chiefs. October 1783, Sardar Jassa Singh Aluwalia passed away while on his way to Amritsar to attend Diwali celebrations. He was cremated near Baba Tal at the Sri Harmandar Sahib, and his bhog was attended by all prominent Sikh Sardars. Having no sons, he was succeeded by Sardar Pag Singh, who established himself at Kapoorthala, which Sardar Jassa Singh Aluwalia had captured a decade earlier and turned into his headquarters. Across the Satluj, Sardar Jassa Singh Ramgadiya saw the passing of the Aluwalia patriarch as an opportunity, as he had stood with Sardar Jaising Kanheya when he had ejected the Ramgadiyas from their territories. Since he was not quite ready to take on the Kanheyas just yet, Jassa Singh Ramgadiya decided to bide his time and focus on building up his resources through more expeditions in the territories of the Rohillas. Sardar Mahasingh Shukarchakya had barely returned to Gujaranwala after paying his respects at the bhog of Sardar Jassa Singh Aluwalia when a most unexpected visitor arrived. The young chief greeted Sardar Hakikat Singh Kanhiya respectfully and after his guest had eaten and refreshed himself, somewhat diplomatically tried to inquire into the reason for his visit. Blunt as usual, Hakikat Singh Kanhiya immediately got to the point. Jammu has become a thorn in my side, Mahasingh, and it's time to do something about it. After Hakikat Singh got into a rant about the perfidy of the family that ruled Jammu, 
pointing out that Mahasingh's father, too, had lost his life during an intervention into the affairs of the kingdom, Mahasingh quietly interjected, But Sardar Hakikat Singh Ji, what can be done? After all, I have exchanged turbans with Raja Brijraj Deo. Had he not committed to pay an annual tribute of 30,000 rupees willingly? Mahasingh admitted that he had indeed. What kind of message will it send to the other chiefs if we allow him to get away with this defiance? Do you think that the chiefs who pay tribute to the Panth Khalsa do it willingly? We will soon have a large-scale rebellion on our hands if we don't act. Mahasingh conceded that Hakikat Singh Kanahiya had a point, but he hemmed and hawed because he was the one who had instigated Brijraj Deo to withhold the tribute, citing the reluctance of the Kanahiyas to come to his aid during the last conflict. The old chief's next words, however, got his attention. The streets of Jammu are paved with gold, and there is enough for both of us if we are willing to seize the opportunity. Brijraj Deo is weak and does not enjoy the support of his subordinate chiefs. The time to strike is now. The exchange turbans forgotten. Mahasingh got his men ready to march to Jammu, as did Hakikat Singh Kanhaya. In January 1784, the chiefs left their respective strongholds, but Mahasingh and his men, riding at a furious pace, arrived in Jammu four days ahead of the Kanhaiyas. Brijraj Deo fled his capital and took shelter at the shrine at Vaishno Devi, and the Shukarchakiyas fell upon the city, putting many to the sword and plundering without restraint for three days and nights. Mahasingh carried away booty worth 10 million rupees, a fabulous sum in those times. When Hakikat Singh Kanhiya arrived with his men, he found the city in ruins, its wealth gone. Angry and frustrated, he returned to his headquarters at Fatehgarh, close to Dinanagar, where he soon passed away. urgent business that had prevented Madhaji Sindhya from going to Delhi at the Emperor Shah Alam's request was a matter of pride. During the Anglo-Maratha War, Raja Chatar Singh, the Jat ruler of Gohad, who had been allied with the British, had taken Gwalior Fort, which was a heavy blow to Sindhya pride. When Madhaji had met John Brown and David Anderson at Agra, during the visit of the Prince Javan Bakht, he had been introduced to a soldier of fortune whose name was Benoit de Boyne. Born in the Duchy of Savoy in the French Alps, de Boyne first enlisted in the Irish Brigade of France, after which he entered the service of Russia. Captured by Turks during the Russo-Turkish War of 1774, he had been sold as a slave, after which he had made his way to St. Petersburg. He had been introduced to Catherine the Great by Lord McCartney, the British ambassador to the Russian court. The Empress had decided to send him to India to explore trade possibilities, and he had arrived in Madras in 1778 and sought employment with the British. When his friend, Lord McCartney, had been deployed to India as the governor of Madras, 
he had sent him to Calcutta with a recommendation to Warren Hastings, who had introduced him to Nawab Asafuddallah of Awadh. The Nawab had welcomed the soldier of fortune to his court, where he had learned how to speak Hindi and Urdu. Madaji Sindhya, much impressed by Du Boyne, offered him employment, which under Hastings' encouragement he accepted. Du Boyne was tasked with raising two infantry battalions, which he did with great success. He also created a foundry for casting guns at Agra. The commander of Agra, Muhammad Beg Hamadani, was bitterly opposed to the re-establishment of Maratha power in Delhi and had been much chagrined when Prince Jivan Bhakt had met with Madhaji Sindhya in Agra. In order to thwart Madhaji's plans, he arranged the assassination of Mirza Shafi, Shah Alam's nephew and a strong supporter of Madhaji. Afsareb Khan and the Gosai brothers, also allies of Madhaji, appealed for his help to punish Hamdani. Even though Madhaji was intent on recapturing the fort at Gwalior, he sent one of his lieutenants, Ambaji Ingle, with a small force in response. Meanwhile, James Brown had reached Delhi and had presented his credentials to the Emperor Shah Alam. The arrival of a British resident at the Mughal court caused great consternation in the Maratha ranks. Bapu Hingane sounded the alarm, reporting that the impecunious emperor had received an offer of funds from Brown in return for his acceptance of British support. Warren Hastings decided to travel to Lucknow from Calcutta, where he remained for several months with the goal of advancing British interests at the Mughal court without provoking a conflict with the Marathas. Hastings managed to convince the heir apparent Mirza Jawan Bakht to visit him in Lucknow and learned that the emperor was amenable to seeking British protection if British forces were stationed permanently in Delhi. Unwilling to make a move that would be seen as an act of war by the Marathas, Hastings decided to back off for the moment, but later that year, when he returned to Calcutta, he decided to take the prince with him. Even though Hastings had stopped short of sending British troops to Delhi, Madhaji Sindhya was rattled by the flight of the Mughal prince and what he perceived to be treachery on the part of Hastings. He decided to strengthen his forces further, relying heavily on Du Boyne, and he sent his agent to Lucknow to question Hastings on his intentions. Hastings backpedaled furiously and assured Madhaji that the prince had only come to seek help against Afsareb Khan and that the British would not interfere with Madhaji's plans in Delhi. Having defeated the Rana of Gohad and reclaimed the fort of Gwalior, Madhaji Sindhya readied to take the emperor under his protection. Sardar Mahasingh Shukarchakya reached out to Jamal Singh Kanhaya, the teenage son of the late Hakikat Singh, with a great show of sympathy. He offered him 5,000 rupees a day to meet his expenses 
and asked the lad to accompany him to Gujaranwala, where Maha Singh wanted to arrange a memorial service for Hakikat Singh. A pall of gloom had descended over the Kanhaiya compound in Batala. Sardar Singh Kanhaiya had been devastated by the loss of his friend and ally, and he was absolutely furious when he heard rumors that Maha Singh had carried off enormous plunder from Jammu without giving Kanhaiyas their fair share. I have treated Maha Singh like a son, he thundered. I practically raised him after the passing of Sardar Charat Singh. I arranged his Anand Karaj with the daughter of Raja Gajpat Singh. I helped him defeat the Chattas. Such ingratitude is unbelievable. Sadakwar and Gurbak Singh sat with the patriarch, their faces grave. Inwardly, Sadakwar was not too unhappy about Maha Singh's fall from grace. She was fully aware of Rajkor's insolence and the air of superiority she maintained, both because she had given birth to a male heir and because her husband was a chief in his own right, unlike her husband Gurbak Singh, who had to defer to his father. You are right, Papaji, she murmured. The whole Shukarchakia clan is arrogant. You wouldn't believe the heirs of Rajkor when she came here after I had given birth. Even her maids are arrogant. Tadkor told me that they were bragging about the conquests of Mahasing. They even had the temerity to say that the Shukarchakias had surpassed the Kanhiyas. The old man, already irritated, did not respond to his daughter-in-law's words, even though he was seething inside. He turned to his son. Where is Jamal? He should have been here by now. Papaji, I have received word that Mahasingh has invited Jamal to Gujaranwala. He is arranging a bhog for Sardar Hakikat Singh and Jamal is already on his way. I've also heard that he is paying Jamal an allowance for the maintenance of his force. Who the hell is Mahasingh to arrange the bhog? He thundered. Are we all dead? Take a thousand men and go after Jamal and give him a sound thrashing if he doesn't listen. The boy is an idiot. Are the Kanhiyas beggars? Does Mahasingh think we are imbeciles? He cheated Hakikat Singh of his share of the wealth of Jammu and now he tries to cover up his misdeeds by throwing a few rupees at Jamal? Tell the boy that he should return Mahasingh's money. We will extract half the plunder from Mahasingh and Jamal will get his rightful share. The Kanhayas will not be cheated. And tell Jamal that the bhog will not be in Gujaranwala, it will be at Fatehgarh. Gurbak Singh rode out with a battalion of the Kanhaya cavalry and reached Mahasingh's camp, where he found the young Jamal Singh Kanhaya as well. Mahasingh greeted his friend courteously, but was surprised when Gurbak Singh brusquely refused the offer of a meal. Something seems to be bothering you, brother, said Mahasingh, eliciting a barrage of angry recriminations from Gurbak Singh. When Mahasingh heard that Sardar Jaisingh Kanhiya was demanding half of the Jammu plunder, he laughed. I attacked Jammu Gurbak Singh. I fought hard and defeated Brijraj Deo's army. The plunder is mine and mine alone. If Tayaji wants half, he'll have to take it from me. If it is the will of Vahiguru, you will surrender all of it to us, said the angry Gurbak Singh 
as he rode out of Mahasingh's camp, Jamal Singh in tow. Sardar Jaisingh Kanahiya spared no expense in arranging Hakikat Singh Kanahiya's bhog, which was attended by all the prominent chiefs. Notably absent was Mahasingh, who sent his agent Divan Dayaram to offer condolences. Jamal Singh was formally anointed Hakikat Singh's successor under the guidance of the Kanahiya Patriarch. Diwali of 1784 was celebrated with great splendor in Amritsar. At the zenith of his power, Sardar Jaisingh Kanhaiya invited Sardar Pag Singh Aluwalia, Sardar Gujar Singh Pangi, and all the other prominent chiefs to attend the celebrations. No invitation had gone to Mahasingh, but against Raj Kaur's advice, he decided to go to Amritsar anyway. If I do not go... It will seem that I am hiding from the Kanhaiyas. Besides, Tayaji has always been fond of me. I am sure his anger will disappear once we meet face to face, he said to his wife, as he left Gujaranwala with a small detachment of warriors. Mahasingh was sure that his mentor had received word of his arrival in Amritsar, and after waiting in vain for an invitation or a summons, he decided to swallow his pride and call upon Sardar Jaisingh, who was in his katra or market. It was late evening, and most of the guests had departed. The patriarch was seated on a cot, talking to Gurbak Singh and a few of his subordinate chiefs. Sadakor, with Mankor and Tankor and her other attendants, was in a room in the back, which was within earshot. Just then, a young warrior entered the room and respectfully saluted the patriarch. Sardar Mahasingh Shukachakya is outside and he is asking to see you. The old man's brow darkened. Tell him I have retired for the night, he said, dismissing the young warrior. The sounds of an argument could be heard outside and then Mahasingh's voice was heard. It is Diwali and I have brought sweets for Tayaji and his family. I will not leave before briefly paying my respects. As soon as Jaisingh Kanhaiya heard Mahasingh's approaching footsteps, he laid down on his cot and pulled a sheet over his face. Mahasingh came in, followed by two lads carrying baskets of sweets, which they put down by the cot. When there was no response to his respectful greeting, Mahasingh drew another cot close to Sadar Jaisingh's and sat down. If I have offended you in any way, Tayaji, please forgive me. You have been a father to me, and I respectfully beg your pardon. I will not budge from here until I have had your blessing. More than an hour passed with Mahasingh waiting patiently for the patriarch to acknowledge him, but shaking with anger, he lay on the cot with his head covered. Finally, in a bitter voice, he simply said, Tell that dancing boy to get out of here. He is not welcome here. The chuckles of the Kanhaya chiefs and Gurbak Singh were drowned out by peals of mocking laughter from Sadakor and her entourage. His face white as a sheet, Mahasingh swallowed the insult and stalked out of the house, his shoulders squared. The next day, Sardar Bhag Singh Aluwalia arrived at Mahasingh's camp with the Kanhaiya's demands. He was commanded to surrender half of the plunder from the Jammu campaign, 
some of it would be offered to the Sri Harmandar Sahib and the bulk of it would go to Jamal Singh Kanhaiya. If he failed to comply, he would never be allowed to enter Amritsar again. Maha Singh kept his cool before Pak Singh Aluwalia and said that he would consider the demand, but inwardly he was seething. The insult had been bad enough, but the notion of ceding half the treasure that he had won through his own efforts was unacceptable to him. After conferring with his kinsmen, Vazir Singh and Bhagwan Singh, leaders of the Nakai Missal, he left Amritsar in the dead of night with his own troops and the Nakai force, numbering more than 1,500. The Kanhayas got wind of his departure and sent their cavalry in pursuit, which engaged Mahasingh near Majitha and was bested by him in the skirmish that followed. The rift between the Kanhayas and the Shukarchakyas, once the staunchest of allies, was now beyond repair. Rattled by the flight of his son and heir apparent into the waiting arms of the British, had decided to act. Major Brown was still making furious attempts to turn Shah Alam into a British puppet, but it was a losing battle because it was apparent that Warren Hastings had backed away from his original plan and was not going to station British troops in Delhi. With the strong support of Afsarayab Khan, the emperor made further overtures to Madhaji Sindhya and then made the journey from Delhi to Agra. Afsarayab Khan's meeting with Madhaji Sindhya at Fatehpur Sikri so incensed Muhammad Beg Hamadani that he arranged the murder of the Mughal noble as he slept in his tent the emperor having lost a second senior advisor to the rebellious commander of Agra, ordered Madhaji Sindhya to punish him. Hamadani was taken into custody by Madhaji's lieutenant, Ambaji Ingle. Two days after the Diwali of 1784, the emperor Shah Alam met with Madhaji Sindhya at Fatehpur Sikri. In a public act of obeisance, Madhaji Sindhya placed his head at the emperor's feet, and offered a nazar or tribute of 101 gold coins. The emperor accepted the offering, commanded Madhaji to sit by his side, and told him to take charge of all aspects of his administration. from Sadar Jaising Kanhaiya, since he had no intention of making over any of the Jammu plunder to the Kanhaiyas, Mahasingh retreated to Gujaranwala to consider his options. His worry increased when he received intelligence that the Kanhaiyas were rallying their forces and getting ready for battle. Mediation would have been best, but Sardar Jasasingh Aluwalia, who could have influenced the Kanhaiya patriarch, was gone. 
there were really no other allies he could think of who could either calm Sardar Jaising Kanhiyar down or would be willing to fight him if he attacked the Shukarchakiyas. Then he had an idea. He called one of his trusted commanders to his side and told him to ride east. His mission was to cross the Satluj and seek out Sardar Jassa Singh Ramgadiya, who was as brave as he was wily, and more importantly, had a score to settle with Sardar Jaising Kanhaiya. A second messenger went to Tira Sujanpur, where Sintharchand lay in wait for an opportunity to strike back at the Kanhaiyas, who still occupied his family stronghold of Kangra. After Mahasingh's messenger had left, the king rushed to his mother's apartments. Chandrika Devi looked at her son quizzically as he almost ran into her bedchamber, scarcely able to contain his excitement. Our time has come, mother, he said triumphantly. Mahasingh of Gujaranwala is building a coalition to take on the Kanhayas and has invited us to join him. We will be marching soon. Sardar Jassa Singh Ramgadiya, experienced in both the ways of men and the conduct of war, was more circumspect. He was well aware that Mahasingh had been the protege of his nemesis, Sardar Jaising Kanhaiya. When Mahasingh's messenger conveyed his chief's request for help against the Kanhaiyas and the offer of reinstatement of all Ramgadiya territories, the chief had a few questions that he posed in a letter. He said that he would be willing to help Mahasingh to take on the Kanhaiyas, but he was apprehensive that if he crossed the Satluj, Jaising Kanhaiya might seek a rapprochement with the Shukarchakya chief, perhaps even offering the hand of his infant granddaughter Mehtab Kaur for Mahasingh's son, Ranjit Singh, to cement the alliance. Further, he was apprehensive that Jaising might cede Kangara to Raja Sansarchan to break the coalition that was forming against him. In either instance, the Ramgadiyas would be left in the cold with nothing to show for their risky military adventure. Maha Singh, very conscious of the fact that he could never take on the Kanhaiyas without the assistance of Sadar Jassa Singh, wrote back, swearing that he would never go back on his word and that he would guarantee the restoration of the Ramgadiya territories. Sardar Jassasingh Ramgadiya, satisfied by the assurance, started making plans for war. He sent an emissary to Sardar Singh Aluwalia, asking him to stay out of the conflict, which the Aluwalia chief, who had just become the supreme leader of his clan, agreed to do. The stage was set for a great confrontation. In 1785, Madhaji Sindhya and Benoit de Boyne rode into Delhi, and a month later, Warren Hastings left India. James Brown was recalled from Delhi, his mission rendered moot 
by the Emperor's decision to become a client of the Marathas. The title of Vakil-e-Mutlaq or Independent Regent was bestowed upon Madhaji and the two most important offices of the Mughal court, Vizier or Prime Minister and Mir Bakshi or Paymaster of the Army were handed over to him. He made a pledge of 65,000 rupees a month to the Emperor to meet the expenses of his household. The traditional robes, seals and accoutrements of the offices such as kettle drums, banners, horses and elephants were conferred upon Madhaji. A meticulous man, Madhaji requested that the symbols of power be given to him in the name of the Peshwa, the supreme leader of the Marathas, but the emperor persisted in issuing them directly to Madhaji. This had the effect of further alienating Madhaji from the Maratha court in Pune, in particular with Nana Fadnis, the Peshwa's chief advisor, a long-time adversary of Madhaji's who believed that he was trying to create a power base independent of the Maratha court. Madhaji Sindhya was given the unenviable task of bringing the rebellious Mughal chiefs to heel, who had been given large land holdings by the emperor but offered nothing in return in terms of revenues, armies or services. He undertook several campaigns in order to establish a regular income for the emperor and to ensure the integrity of the territorial possessions that were under constant threat from his chiefs. He established his headquarters at Mathura, which allowed him to keep an eye on Agra, an important imperial holding, as well as Delhi. It also kept his fighting force, which came to be known as the Army of Hindustan, within striking distance of the three powers that could threaten the Mughal court, the Rajputs in the southwest, the Sikhs in the northwest, and the Pathans, who held Rohilkhand and the Yamuna Ganga Dwab. On January 14, 1785, Sardar Bagail Singh and Sardar Jassa Singh Ram Gadiya crossed the Yamuna with a large body of men drawn from their missiles as well as the Nishanwala and Dallewalia missiles. They rode past Zabita Khan Rohila's fort at Ghausgar, plundering and pillaging without any response from him, and they crossed the Ganga and penetrated deep into Rohelkhand. Their target was the affluent town of Chandausi, home to several hundred bankers, jewelers, and wealthy merchants. The pillaging, which went on for two days, yielded plunder worth more than 10 million rupees. Several Rohila chiefs submitted to the Sikhs, agreeing to pay rakhi or protection money in order to save their territories from being ravaged. The raid into Rohilkhand, which brought the marauding Sikhs to the boundaries of Avad, got the attention of both the Marathas and the British. Madhaji Sindhya had recently appointed Ambaji Ingle, the Fajdar or commander of Sonepat and its surrounding areas, primarily to keep an eye on the Sikhs and to protect Delhi from them. He had been painfully aware that as long as the Sikhs were able to plunder territory under his control with impunity, he would not be able to effectively discharge his duties as the emperor's regent. He also hoped that he might be able to use them to break the power of the various Mughal nobles 
who were not supporting the emperor and were not paying their dues to court. He had already been considering an alliance with the Sikhs, and the raid in Rohilkhand brought the issue to the forefront. Nawab Asif and his British allies, aware of Mataji's intentions, were apprehensive about a potential alliance between the Marathas and the Sikh Sardars. Both the Sikhs and the Marathas received word that Zabita Khan Rohilla had passed away. His son Gulam Qadir, who had been a protege of Mataji Sindhya's and had been under his protection, succeeded his father, taking control of his seat at Gaussgarh. The Sikh Sardars, who were planning to go further east, decided to turn their attention to Gosgar instead. On the 1st of February, a messenger arrived with a letter that asked the Sikhs to join the Marathas in expelling the, quote, Turks from Hindustan and offering an alliance with Madhaji Sindhya. Sardar Baghel Singh conferred with the other Sikh chiefs and sent back a reply the Sikhs were willing to consider a treaty with the Marathas. Several days later, the combined Sikh forces set up their camp close to Gosgar, where a messenger from Gulam Qadir arrived with an offer of tribute in the form of Rakhi, as well as an offering to the Sikh congregation for Karaprashad as a mark of respect. In exchange, he requested that his territories not be plundered. Apprehensive of Sikh designs on Avad, a detachment of British troops had marched out of Fatehgarh under the command of Colonel Sir John Cumming to take on the Sikhs if they attacked. The combination of Ghulam Qadir's surrender to the Sikhs and the movement of British troops spooked Madhaji Sindhya. It seemed that his regency was off to a rocky start. A Maratha agent was rushed to the British camp to ascertain their intentions. Colonel Cumming assured the agent that the only purpose of his march was to preempt a Sikh attack upon Avad, and furthermore, the British would be willing to help the Marathas repulse the Sikhs if their forces were unequal to the task. In return, he requested that as a sign of good faith, the Marathas attacked the Sikhs who were in Rohilkhand and forced them to return to the Punjab. That, he said, would alleviate the danger to Avad and enable him to retreat to Fatehgarh. Even as Madhaji was making diplomatic overtures to the Sikhs, Ambaji Ingle attacked a Sikh detachment, killing 200 and capturing 70 horses. The furious Sikh Sardars fell upon Panipat and plundered it, attacking a battalion of sepoys in the service of Madhaji. Convinced of Madhaji Sindhya's insincerity, the Sikhs decided to open negotiations with the British. Ambaji Ingle, nervous about retaliation from the Sikhs, made fresh overtures to them, trying to salvage the alliance that had been proposed by his overlord. While Sardar Baghel Singh and the other Sardars remained behind to engage with the Marathas, Sardar Jassa Singh Ram Gadiya returned to the Punjab with his army, where other pressing matters awaited.
Sardar Jayasinghe Kanaiya, who had got wind of the Ramgadhiya's warlike maneuvers, sent an army under Gurbakh Singh Duya to engage them at Jagraon, where Sardar Jayasinghe Ramgadhiya was encamped. The Kanaiya force was defeated, and in February 1785, the Ramgadhiya army crossed the Satluj. Raja Sansar Chand had been instructed by Maha Singh to wait with his forces at Dinanagar, 50 miles north of Amritsar. The Shukar Chakia and Ramgadhiya chiefs converged upon Amritsar, where they were joined by Amar Singh Bagga, a Kanhaiya chief who had defected. With Maha Singh were also the forces of Amar Singh Nakai. After inconclusive skirmishes with the small Kanhaiya forces in Amritsar, the combined force of maha singh and jassa singh ramgadhiya started advancing towards batala about 25 miles away from amritsar the battle started in the morning at an open field in achal on the outskirts of batala the 8000 strong kanhaiya forces were under the command of the dashing gurbakh singh who rode furiously rallying his troops and jumping into the fray where he saw the fighting to be at its fiercest as steel clashed with steel and a thick hail of bullets and arrows flew the two armies strained against each other neither able to gain the upper hand then disaster struck the kanhaiyas for an arrow launched by an archer from the battalion of mahant sundardas udasi found its mark and felled gurbakh singh a kanhaiya warrior named vasakha singh spurred his horse towards batala and arrived at the kanhaiya headquarters to inform sadakwar that her husband had fallen in battle the remarkable woman whose life had just changed dramatically did not wail or mourn she demanded that vasakha singh hand over his horse to her and vaulted into the saddle riding furiously towards the battlefield in achal nobody dared to stop her as she rode into the thick of battle where her bloodied husband lay she dismounted and cradled his head in her lap exhorting him not to leave without saying goodbye but he was gone She unwound her husband's sash and wound it around her own waist after which she took off her headscarf and fashioned it into a small turban then she strapped on her dead husband's weapons and mounted her horse the death of the scion of the kanhaiya clan halted the battle and the kanhaiya forces retreated unmolested by the invading force Sadakor was able to take her husband's body back to Batala. Sardar Jaisingh Kanhaiya, devastated by the loss of his son, emptied his quiver of arrows on the ground and threw down his sword as well, wailing in anguish and asking to be killed. Such was the respect he commanded that rather than attacking him the attacking force lowered its weapons as Jamal Singh Kanhaiya led the old man to safety conveying him to Pathankot Sadakor waited for the inevitable in Batala after ensuring that Gurbakh Singh's last rites were completed she also managed to build a small memorial to her fallen husband on the north side of the city As the victorious Ramgadhiyas roared into Batala, Sadakor and her attendants were forced to leave their home and flee, fearful of their wrath. 
Sadakor barely managed to escape as the city was overrun. Barefoot, her infant daughter in her arms, Tankor and Monkor carrying whatever valuables they could grab before leaving with her, she had to jump over walls to slip out of the city. The fleeing band of women managed to get safely to Sohia, close to Majitha. As Sardar Jaising Kanahiya was trying to regroup and collect his scattered forces, Jassa Singh Ramgadiya and Sansar Chand, who had been lying in wait at Dinanagar, went about the business of claiming the territories that the Kanahiyas had taken from them. The territories of the mighty Kanahiyas, who had been the envy of the other missiles, were divided into four parts. Sansarchand captured Hajipur, Mukeria, and the surrounding areas in the foothills. Amar Singh Bagga seized Sujanpur, and Mahasingh captured a swath of land that generated revenues of 300,000 rupees a year. The Ramgariyas managed to get most of their territory back, including the rich city of Batala. Sansarchand also attacked the fort of Atalgarh, which was defended gallantly by a woman named Dasar, who served Jaising Kanhiya. The siege, which lasted four months, failed, and Sansarchand abandoned his efforts to take the fort. He was also unable to take back the well-defended fort of Kangra, which remained in Kanhiya hands. While the Ramgariyas and Sansarchand were engaged in recovering their territories, Mahasingh clashed again with the Kanaya forces at Noshara. Both sides took heavy casualties, but the Shukar Chakya carried the day, forcing Sardar Jaising Kanaya and Jamal Singh to take refuge at the fort of Noorpur. The Shukar Chakyas besieged the fort, but unable to make headway against the defences, and apprehensive of staying much longer in hostile territory, retreated to Dinanagar. Raja Sansarchand welcomed Mahasingh Shukarchakya effusively to his camp, but his jubilation at the coalition's great victory was tempered by his disappointment at not being able to capture the ancient Katoch stronghold of Kot Kangra. After the evening meal, he invited Mahasingh to his tent for a private conference. Two hundred thousand rupees, he said. That is what Kot Kangra is worth to me, Sardar Mahasingh. Will you win it back for me? Any misgivings that Mahasingh might have suffered after the death of his friend and the humiliation of his erstwhile mentor vanished. He promised to send help after he had rested his forces at Gujarawala after the arduous campaign that he had just completed. A Shukarchakya force, 1,000 strong, under the command of Dayaram and Ahmad Salah, was dispatched to Kangra to assist Sansarchand with the siege of the fort. The siege dragged on for six months, with the Kanhaya defenders showing no signs of capitulation. The Shukarchakya commanders were in dire straits, unable to pay and feed their men, as Sansarchand flatly refused to release any funds out of the promised sum until the fort had been taken. When the commanders appealed to Mahasingh, he sent back angry letters insisting that they extract the expenses from Sansarchand. When they confronted Sansarchand, a skirmish broke out in which Ahmed Salah was killed. 
The wounded Dayaram, his band in a sorry state, limped back to Gujranwala and Sansarchand continued the siege with his own army. An unexpected visitor arrived at Sansarchand's camp in the middle of the siege. He respectfully bowed to touch Chandrika Devi's feet, but could not help showing his irritation. Why are you here, mother? Surely you know that this is no place for women. His mother, however, had come bearing the gift of sound advice. Due to the Kanhayas, she said, exactly what they did to you. Sansar Chan's messenger rode furiously, without halting even to rest his horse, until he arrived at Nurpur, delivering a missive from his master to the Kanhaya patriarch. In return for the Kanhaya ceding Kangra fort to him, Sansar Chand promised to join forces with Sadar Jaising Kanhaya and attack Mahasingh to avenge the death of Gurbak Singh and the loss of the Kanhaya territories. The weakened patriarch, desolate and desperate, readily agreed. To the sound of kettle drums, Raja Sansar Chand triumphantly rode into the ancestral citadel of his proud Katoch ancestors. As soon as he was entrenched at the fort, he reneged on his promise to Sardar Jaising Kanhiya and flatly refused to take the field against Mahasingh. The frustrated old man retired to Atalgarh, cursing both Mahasingh and Raja Sansar Chand. the list of references that went into the writing of episode 2 of The Rise and Fall of the Sikh Empire. Avtar Singh Azad, Mahabali, Bhagat Singh, History of the Sikh Missiles, Purnima Dhavan, When Sparrows Became Hawks, Hariram Gupta, History of the Sikhs, The Sikh Commonwealth, Prem Singh Hoti Mardan, Khalsa Raj Deusariye, Krishna Dayal Bhargav, editor, James Brown Correspondence, Ganda Singh, editor, Early European Accounts of the Sikhs, Govind Saharam Sardesai, The New History of the Marathas, Volume 3, Gani Gyan Singh, Raj Khalsa, Volume 1, Sayyid Muhammad Latif, History of the Punjab, Surjit Singh Gandhi, Sikhs in the 18th Century, J. Hutchinson, and J. Vogel, History of the Punjab Hill States, Volume 1, and Dr. Ganda Singh, The Maratha Sikh Treaty of 1785.
rise and fall of the Sikh empire is brought to you by Almast Media, the creators of the Story of the Sikhs podcast and the Gurmat Sangeet podcast. The podcast features original music by Indian classical guitar maestro Ritam Sarkar. Tabla accompaniment is provided by Swarnava Ghosh. The podcast is made possible by the Chardi Kala Foundation, Ishpreet Singh and Manpreet Kaur, and the Sani Family Foundation. It is written and narrated by Sarpreet Singh, author of The Camel Merchant of Philadelphia, The Night of the Restless Spirits, The Story of the Sikhs, and Koltar's Mind. To introduce myself briefly, I'm a Boston-based actor who was introduced to the Sikh world a few years ago when I toured extensively with Koltar's Mind, an immersive theatrical production that tells the story of the anti-Sikh violence of 1984. I am delighted to be involved in the retelling of this fabulous tale. I'm host Ben Gutman. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.